Our kids have said to us since we moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early, so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. On this episode, an author shares stories of high strangeness from his native Kentucky. Well, this lady began to notice these flakes continuing to fall. They came a little bit heavier, almost like big snowflakes. And when they would hit, they were wet, they were damp. So the woman couldn't understand what was going on. And before she could get off the porch, big quarter-size, half-dollar-size chunks started falling. This place, it was about a 75 by 100, I think 150 square area completely covered in what looked almost like stew meat, like uncooked stew meat or stir-fry meat. And it was like a couple inches deep. Now, when the woman was asked about it, there was not a cloud in the sky. There was nothing in the sky. This podcast is brought to you by Canada's decontamination specialists, Crime and Trauma Scene Cleaners. Crime and Trauma Scene Cleaners is committed to helping people when tragedy strikes. Their objective is to restore safety to an environment in the most professional and discreet manner possible. To contact Crime and Trauma Scene Cleaners, visit crimescenecleaners.ca. Call 1-866-724-0800, 1-866-724-0800, or email them at info at crimescenecleaners.ca. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serres. Pursuing the truth wherever it leads. Exposing evil and corruption and the secret machinations of powerful elites. Revealing the high strangeness beneath the surface of our supposed reality. Coming to you from his studio beneath the stairs. Here's Richard Serrett. Welcome to your Monday. Steve Asher from the House of Asher and author of several books in his Haunted Kentucky series is standing by to talk about his upcoming YouTube series, History from the Dark Side, and he'll share several stories from the Bluegrass State. Steve is a paranormal researcher and a native of Princeton, Kentucky. 
He's also a published author with multiple books to his credit. He's an artist, podcast host, and musician, and a fan of horror and paranormal subjects. Previously, Steve worked over 10 years in law enforcement as a correctional officer. He's a longtime researcher of the strange and the unusual, and he's traveled worldwide in a pursuit to learn of legends and folklore from other cultures. He's an avid lover of the nighttime and has said this is when he feels most truly alive in the darkness of the night and therefore most productive in his paranormal research and writing. He's the author of Hauntings of the Western Lunatic Asylum, Hauntings of the Kentucky State Penitentiary, and Hauntings of the St. Vincent Academy. Steve Asher, welcome back to Conspiracy Unlimited. How are you? I'm doing great, Richard. Uh, you know, I, I appreciate every time I get to talk to you, and, and I'm always thankful that you had me back on for a, no, a whole other adventure. My pleasure. Well, you're off on a whole other adventure. You're about to launch a new YouTube series next month called History from the Dark Side. Now, are the, the stories that you tell in this new series, are they limited to Kentucky? Because your books, of course, deal with hauntings in Kentucky. What about the YouTube series? Well, you know... And it, it is very easy to kind of fall into that pair of shoes, you know, and just and just kind of uh, walk that same path because, it, you know, this is what I know. This is the areas that I know. And, uh, you know, there's a decent amount, you know, especially the, the first probably five episodes are going to touch on things that are exclusively, you know, happening in Kentucky. I mean, they happen in other parts, but it's Kentucky stories. But, uh, you know, no, beyond that, I want to branch out and do other spots. Well, let's sure. just dive in and, and, and preview um, some upcoming episodes. And again, uh, this YouTube series debuts in October, and it's called History from the Dark Side. Now, this is a story I'm not familiar with, but it has to do with a coffin uh, found underneath a courthouse, which is kind of interesting because recently there was, I don't know if you saw this in the news, there was a coffin of a young girl unearthed underneath a, a house in San Francisco that was being renovated. The coffin was 145 years old. It had windows in it. And the, the girl inside, three years old, was perfectly preserved. Uh, but that's another story for another time. Tell me about the coffin under the courthouse. Okay, this is our local uh, Caldwell County courthouse. It's not three blocks from me. And uh, I grew up around the area of my whole life and I did not know this until I was you know well into my 40s there are two variations of the story okay there's the one that was in the newspaper because there was a newspaper story about this in, in the uh, I think it was the times and um so anyway the Cal the Caldwell County Courthouse there had been several uh, incarnations of it the the I think the first one or the second one was burned during the Civil War they had a simple third one put up and then in the 19th I think it was 1946 they were doing some renovations in this area, and they decided to put up a new courthouse, a nicer courthouse. Well, when they did this, they decided to dig into the ground, put a storm shelter, you know, make, you know, just, it was that, you know, in that time, why not have a place to store that's going to be less likely to get bombed, you know? So anyway, they were doing this, and they hit what they thought was a lead vein or some sort of mineral thing, because it was a big, bulky spot, you know? It wasn't just like earth or just normal rock well the more they keep working around this they discover a lead lined coffin and kind of similar to the story that you just mentioned what the first story was or, or i should say the first paper the newspaper said but they found a coffin probably 
Civil War, maybe slightly pre-Civil War era. There was uh, it was intact. Nobody was in it. It was displayed at the courthouse as sort of an oddity for a few weeks. But as the war effort went on, they ended up putting it on the scrap pile to be sent off to be made into bombs or airplane wings, whatever. Which I thought a little bit weird, you know, because this is a history thing. You know, this is a strange piece of history. I think it, they also wanted to kind of just get it out of there. Right, you know, right. Why, why be known as a county with a weird you know, courthouse with the coffins in the bottom, like a strackless courthouse. But I talked to another gentleman, and I won't mention his name. He's a local lawyer. And he said, uh, yeah, there was more to that story. I said, I'd love to hear it. It seemed it was just sort of like it was there and it was gone. Nothing else was ever mentioned of it. He says, okay, I had an uncle who was part of the excavation team. I said, okay, well, what happened? I said, okay, this is coming from him, so this is like a secondhand deal. Okay, I can't vouch for it. I wasn't there. I said, okay, well, tell me what happened. He said, there was a there was a young man in that coffin. Ooh. What do you mean? And I, said, I said, like a little boy had died? He said, no, no, no. This, this is a finely dressed, probably what we would call a young man, no more than 21 summers. I said, well, how did they, how could they tell? Would they have been broken? He wouldn't have been really badly decomposed, right? Did they have a, a tag or some sort of marker? No, there was nothing like that. But they said there was not a mark on the boy. He said, it looked like he was sleeping. Wow. And I said, oh, you're telling me, now you're going to tell me he's got capes and fangs. He said, no, 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 nothing, nothing like that. He just looks like he was completely preserved in this, I'm assuming it was an airtight coffin. Uh, and I said, well, what happened to the coffin? He says, well, the one that they displayed at the courthouse, I don't believe that was it. The way I understood it was the body and the coffin was supposedly reinterred somewhere. I said, was, you know, something like a local graveyard, a church? He says, I don't know. He says, I've even heard that they reburied it deeper into the ground and covered it with concrete when they put the new floor in. And I said, why was that? And what he gave me was a very interesting what i would call a sort of a southern flavor into the story someone put him there with love they wanted him there and you know it was obviously they put him in somewhere they thought he would be safe and there was nobody could get to him and who are we to change that and so as far as i know that young man still lies under the ground at our call county courthouse right now fascinating and it, it's very strange you know and there is an awkward feeling down there, which I, it's partially underground, so it makes you kind of go, oh, maybe it's that. And, you know, there's a lot of cords here, a lot of energy. But who knows? Maybe, it's, maybe people pick up on that. And, and, and did you say that the courthouse dated back, the previous one dated back to the Civil War? Well, there had been, okay, during the Civil War, there was a, 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 a great... Uh, there was a general. I'm trying to make sure I got up the, the dates and names right. During the Civil War, who come through, and this was a very uh, normal thing for some reason. The Southern people would come through. The Southern cavalry uh, would come through, and they would go to courthouses, large structures, and take out all the information, take out any paperwork and precious stuff, and they would burn the structure so Union forces could not use them. Um, there was a the company Cumberland Library, which was here in Princeton, Kentucky. That the union did take over, and they were like, okay, well, they've got that one. They're not going to take this courthouse. So they burned it to the ground. Now, at that time, nothing was said about anyone being hurt, anybody's being buried. So as far as I know, no one was harmed in that. There was another courthouse built 
and then I think a third, and then finally the existing one that we got now. Right. And that was the one where they dug into the ground. So that thing, the ground has been had been not disturbed since well before the Civil War. So that body may have been under there for, well, let's hazard a guess. How long do you think? Yeah, you know, well, I mean, Civil War was there, what, like 1860s, something like that? Um, and if it was, there was a structure there before that, you know, this could have this conceivably went back to early, early 1800s, if not before. And the body was the, perfectly preserved. Yeah, like, you remember the, um, the kind of collars, kind of funny starch collars back in the day, like the early aristocratic, like, like a young nobleman is what, what they kind of described it as. It's like a young, a young nobleman. Hmm. You know, I don't want to venture to go like, well, think of like Vampire was dead before he was changed. <laughs> in that same sort of regalia. Fascinating. You know, pre drag pre drag you know, but very in the best finery and, you know, very handsome guy, they said. They didn't understand why he was in there. So some they thought perhaps he had contracted scarlet fever or some sort of thing like that, you know, Spanish flu. And right. they put him in a lead-lined coffin and air airtight site. No one would get sick from it, but also where he would be preserved. Right, right. It's a, it's a, you know, it's a toss up. So, but it's super weird. Fascinating story. All right. So we go back to 1876 for this one. And it's uh, the Kentucky meat shower. We're all familiar with the movie cloudy with a chance of meatballs. Uh, but this was real life. And uh, we had meat purportedly pouring from the heavens. Uh, what part of Kentucky was this? Okay. This is close to Allen's Allensville. This is up toward closest major city would be uh, Louisville, and there's a museum up there. It's a like a medical museum. It's one of the first ones in Kentucky, and um, it's connected with the Transylvania University, which Kentucky originally was called Transylvania, which I guess it makes sense. It's where I'm from. But um, <laughs> so anyway, there was a summer day. There was a, a lady. She was making uh, she was making soap on on her back deck, back porch. You know, clear day, nothing going on, and started noticing those like reddish flakes. You'd almost think it would be little bits of leaves, you know, falling. But this was not the time of year, you know, it was for, for leaves to be changing. Pretty nice day. And as I understand, there was, you know, people out picnicking, a few houses over. It was just a very nice, simple, you know, summer or, you know, whatever, spring day. Well, this lady began to notice these flakes continuing to fall. They came a little bit heavier, almost like uh, big, big snowflakes. And when they would hit, they were wet. They were down. So the woman couldn't understand what was going on. And before she could get off the porch, big quarter size, half dollar size chunks started falling. This place, it was about a seventy-five by a hundred, I think, one hundred and fifty square area, but completely covered in what looked almost like stew meat, like uncooked stew meat or stir-fry meat, and it was like a couple inches deep. Now, when the woman was asked about it, there was not a cloud in the sky, there was nothing in the sky, because one of the speculations was that, you know, uh, well, maybe uh, a vulture had fed on something, and sometimes they'll regurgitate. I mean, that would be a lot of lot of buzzards to be throwing up that much meat <laughs> at one time, I'll and there's nothing seen. That's a lot of meat. It's a, it's a heck of a buffet somewhere. I'll say. So, and again, this is raw meat. Well, raw meat. Well, 
that's where it gets really, that's where the dark and weird side comes into it. That's not weird enough. Let me break, make it, let me make it a little bit weirder. So of course, neighbors come over, you know, yeah, you, you can hear the conversation. What's going on, Jebediah? I don't know, Isaac. There's a lot of <laughs> meat falling on there. Wow. Well, that's kind of almost like manifest from heaven. I and mean, maybe it's kind of a blessing. So they started kind of picking this up, looking at it. You know how guys are. Well, I think it's venison. I don't know. Uh, it, maybe it could be some sort of a quail, maybe something tore up a bird. And it doesn't look like quail. And they're back and forth. So they actually take some of the meat, put it, you know, cook it up on like a little uh, spit. And then they're like uh, sampling it, tasting it. Hmm. No, no, it tastes a little bit. I don't know. Maybe, maybe, it's, uh, maybe it's elk. Back and forth, back and forth. Well, someone had uh, enough foresight to grab some of this meat and they sent it to an, a, a place to check it out to do forensics on it you know as it was trying to find out what kind of this stuff was what, what kind of material some people said maybe it's a red algae you know that happens sometimes like you know the waters will turn red right right well that's not what it seemed to be this is what this is this is the corker rich the corker was they came back with two most likely scenarios. One was it was some sort of horse meat, which might go in line with a, vo- a horse died or a bunch of horses died and a bunch of vultures ate them, vomited them all over the field. Again, nothing was seen. No one reported a bunch of horses dead for you know 25 miles. Everything was good because people looked into it. Or not particularly horse meat, horse lung tissue, which is very specific. Or the other possibility, which no one would really want to talk about, infant human lung tissue. Infant that human lung infant. tissue. Oh, dear Lord. Yeah. Yeah, that's horrible. And because, and then it's like, okay, well, was there a mass die-off? Was there, I mean, it was, there was nothing in that area. Of course, they have river flooding and sometimes Spanish flu comes through again and consumes. No one, if this is not black plague times, no one is stacking their kids up like corkwood outside and letting them just rot. Everyone is going to bury their kid. So there's no, you know, mass pile of dead babies for, for vultures to eat. And uh, to this day, they still have a section of that meat. It's never been, it's never been soft. I went to the location. Um, I think I told you earlier in, earlier in the, I guess it was in the, toward the end of last year, I took a trip to Allensville, met some of the local people who were really super great. No one talks about it. It's, well, you know, you can kind of understand. It's a very simple parochial, parochial town. Right. But this one gentleman who was on the fire department took me through and showed me things. And uh, he said, this is the field right there. And I said, you know, it's weird. You think you'd do something like a, a, a plaque or a thing? He's like, well, I mean, think about it. Would, would you want to have a plaque that's talking about, you know, un, you know, probably 100-something pounds worth of possible infant body tissue being eaten by, eaten by the people? That would be cannibalism, wouldn't it? And I went... Okay, I see your point. <laughs> right, right. But imagine, though, and I've read accounts where this is something like uh, this: the area that was covered, according to Mrs. Crouch, and this is the witness, uh, something like Crouch, fi- 50 feet by 100 feet. That's right. that's 5,000 square feet. Right, and, and like several inches deep. Yeah. I've heard from accounts from two inches to four inches. I mean, that, that's a lot of stir fry. And... <laughs> You know, and the crazy thing was, you know, there was there was blood, but not. You would think that much blood would, or that much meat would have 
like a river of blood beneath her body. But there was very little. It mainly whatever blood or liquid was inside the meat. Right, right. It almost makes me think, and I, I, I'm not going to take the jump, but I have to entertain the thought. You know when they talk about somebody will, or not somebody or whoever, whatever, aliens or whoever, might abduct cattle, this and that, and they carve out certain sections. Yes, yes. You never know what happens with all the pieces they cut out. There you, you go. Know, was, was, it, was it like, you know, like when we sharp, remember sharpening pencils with a pencil sharpener, and then you shake <laughs> all the shaving stone? Was, were they, was that their way of getting, dumping the trash? I don't know. It's, I mean, I, I say that kind of tongue-in-cheek. Again, pardon the joke, but it's awful strange, you know, and then, and then again, to this day, they don't talk about it. More of my conversation with paranormal researcher, author Steve Asher, when Conspiracy Unlimited returns. For a couple of weeks now, I've been talking to you about my brand new venture. It's called Strange Planets Full Script Dispensary. All sorts of wonderful supplements and healthcare products, but not just for us humans, but also for our furry friends. Here is Colleen Forgus, our registered nutritional therapist, to tell us more. Hey, Colleen. Hey, Richard. I wanted to talk about a product that's great for our dogs and cats. It's called Pet Joint Support by Now Foods. This product was designed by a veterinarian and it contains glucosamine and MSM, which are anti-inflammatories to help with our pet's joint flexibility and mobility issues. So sometimes as they start to age, they might get a little slow in moving around and this supplement is designed to help them have less discomfort and be a little more active. And what's the product called again, Colleen? It's called Pets, P-E-T-S, Joint Support by Now Foods. Excellent. And that's available at Strange Planet's Full Script Dispensary. Just go to strangeplanet.ca and click on the Full Script Dispensary button. And don't forget, all orders receive 10% off and shipping is absolutely free throughout the month of September. That's right. All orders ship for free through September. Talk next week, Colleen. Take care, Richard. The Strange Planet Full Script Dispensary. Nature grade, science made. These products have not been evaluated by the FDA and are not intended to diagnose, treat, or cure. If you have a medical concern, please consult a healthcare professional. Richard has tiny talking insects living in his sock drawer. We are bags and we are living in Richard's sock drawer. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. Steve Asher is here discussing high strangeness in Kentucky. I love talking about giants and I was down in uh, Moundsville, West Virginia in late June, my boys and I were on a road trip. We went to see baseball games in Cincinnati, and then we went on to uh, Pittsburgh before coming back to Cleveland. On the way to Pittsburgh, we passed through West Virginia. We went to Moundsville, right across from the, uh, the famous Moundsville State Penitentiary, arguably one of the most haunted locations in America. And uh, across the street from the pen is this amazing earthen mound uh, right next to the uh, a, a museum, a lovely museum, which showcases uh, the Ohio Valley's prehistory. And the theory was that this mound was built by the Adena people. And, you know, there are a lot of people that believe that the Adena 
were essentially a race of giants. I'm not talking like, you know, the Nephilim or Goliath, like nine, ten feet tall, but just an unusually tall, an unusually tall race of people, maybe six and a half, seven, seven and a half feet tall. Uh, now, the giants that were uncovered, the skeletons of giants found in eastern Kentucky. Tell me about them. Okay, you know, and see, I have to pick and choose. What I'm looking at is specifically a story where there were three giants that were ranging from anywhere from nine to twelve foot tall, and they had they were laid out ceremonially inside of a cave. There was these three. There's two brothers and a cousin, and this was right around Adair County because there's other locations in Kentucky where supposedly they had found over thirty one like Nephilim types, you know, multiple row of teeth. Um, giant skeletons. They're all over, and it and, and almost exclusively it ties in with that particular uh, a group of Native Americans. And so these boys are out. It was wintertime. I'm not sure if they were hunting or tracking or whatever. Oh, you're cutting and, out. Uh, to start start over. I don't, I don't know if they were hunting or tracking or what. If you could start I don't know that. if they were hunting or tracking or what, but they went out, and it, it, it was winter, but it wasn't bad storming. So anyway, they got out, and it really started coming down to the point of where they were, it was like a blizzard. They could not see. And they said, well, where are we, where are we close to? And they said, well, there's got to be something here. There's got to be a, a alcove or something to get under. Well, these kids go, oh, what about that little spot down by the whatever, the open spot where we fish a lot? Oh, yeah, yeah, I think it's got a spot. So they go down there. Well, they're huddling back in there, and they're trying to get, you know, start a fire and do anything to keep, you know, it's freezing. Well, they're all pushing back and pushing back, and they're, as they're, working, you know, trying to get fire going, they notice the cave's going a little bit deeper. So they kind of was like, huh, okay, well, let's kind of check this out. It's got to be a little bit warmer than it is out here. So off they go. They start scrambling in through this. And at first, it's pretty small. And they kind of get down, and it's winding. But they start noticing kind of like almost like markings on the wall. And so they're like, oh, this must be, you know, maybe a Native American hunting spot or something, right? So they keep going in, and they get to where there's a, a large rock kind of area where it's like smooth, smooth down and it's been ch- you know, chipped away and, you know, it's tail it's been worked and they're able to push into this little room and they have these three, um, three skeletons laid out ceremonious, uh, ceremonially. I don't think it's a word ceremoniously. There we are <laughs> with a very large shield. It like a, think about like a surfboard, like a metal surfboard. Right. Huge. Right. They had that land kind of over their, their breastbones and, and down to, I guess, their you know, midriff area. And they also had a very large shield that was like as long as three or four uh, like Roman-type spears, like long, really huge, long, you know, giant heads on it. Well, you know, it looks like they look around. There's all kinds of different little etchings and different little items and just little quirky things, you know. Uh, I don't remember if they had any of the red ochre on them or any of that. But so anyway, they wait a little bit and they start getting weirded out because, first of all, there's giant skeletons right behind you. <laughs> well, their candles are getting lower. Candles, you know, it's just like, I don't know if we can find our way out if we stay in here. So let's get out here and tell somebody. Okay, they go out. Um, luckily, the snow was starting to slow down. Okay, well, they kind of retrace their steps best as they can. Well, they make it home half froze to death. They're in bed for like a couple of days. And they keep telling this story. Oh, there's these giants, you know. And they're thinking, no, no, no. You're about half froze to death. You're delusional. And, oh, you know, all, all that. You know, they're kids. They're, they're 
It's like, sure, okay, giants. Um, as far as I know, they were never able to find the cave again. Or the cave, something happened to the cave and like the front fell in or something. There was some issue where they could never go to the cave again. But they gave pretty good details of like kind of what the markings look like. And it sounds, it sounds almost like very like glyphs. It, it doesn't sound no so much as Native American. It almost sounds like maybe Aramaic or something. Uh-huh. But see, that's the tie-in because you know there's a lot of people that talk about you know giants and they talk about the, you know in the early days of American Phoenicians visiting here. And yes, yes. So it's it's very strange, and uh, you know to to their deathbed. You know, because people would ask him, you know, you're getting ready to pass over, John. I think one of those guys' name is John. He's a grandfather by then. He says, is there anything you want to confess? And he says, if you're talking about those skeletons, no. I, I hand to God, I saw them. They're there. You know, and he said, I just wish I could have taken you back. I said, but maybe we weren't supposed to go in there to begin with. That's why we can't find it. Aha. Uh-huh. Which is kind of kind of a wisdom. Sure. You know, so. Sure. Has anyone tried? Has anyone tried to pick up the trail and find those bones recently? Have you tried? I don't know. I would love to. I would love to go to a, to a Dare County and try it. Um, yeah, you up for a road trip? <laughs> Why not? Why not? Sounds Let's good. All right. So many of us are familiar with uh, the the legend of Springheeled Jack, which is. It's a story from England, really, like the 1830s, uh, sort of, I guess, Edwardian England. And, uh, well, I'll let you tell the story about, you know, the legend of spring Jack, but I, I don't really understand the connection because you're, you're in Kentucky. This happened in England. You know, and that's the strangest thing. I, I could contribute some of this to, hey, look at that guy. He's got a neat haircut. I think I'm going to get a haircut. You go back to your little village and go, What's that about? Oh, that's the first guy with that haircut. They don't know anything about this. So, which I think most people knew about, maybe not so much Spring Hill Jack in this area, but they definitely knew about guys like Jack the Ripper, which there was reports of supposedly Jack the Ripper being in America at some time. But as a Spring Hill Jack story, as I understand it, uh, it was a dark, darkly dressed man, not particularly bad looking, kind of like, you know, the, you know, the, the good-looking devil, you know, the dark-eyed devil kind of stuff. And he was an attractive-looking guy, but he would come upon women, you know, uh, usually they're alone, and he would either hit them or he'd, like, rip at the dresses, you know, like to try to open the fronts up and things. Just, you know, not a, not a particularly good guy. And then once someone's after him, he would, you know, take a, take a leap with whatever he's got going on with his shoes or boots or whatever, and he would clear... 10, 12 foot walls. And this happened for, for a decent while. And then suddenly stopped. And if my memory serves me, to, to quote Adam West, <laughs> the incidences in England had slowed down a while. They picked up in Louisville, or around Louisville, or as we'd say here. Then that passed, uh, kind of faded off, and then it went elsewhere. It may have went back to England. It may have went to another European area, but it went transatlantic. And as for why or why, I can't understand, because the women who that gave, you know, thank God, as I understand, no one was murdered. They got raped. But their description matched to a T, Spring Hill Jack. 
And this picked up in, in Louisville when, 1880s or something? Right about probably late late eighteen eighties eighteen nineties because like I said it was just it wasn't in tandem with with the London uh, terrorists and stuff that was going on it was like it sort of like it stopped for a while then it picked up right like fifty fifty years later yeah isn't that true how could that be the same <laughs> right maybe it's how a franchise. <laughs> Maybe it's a Maybe. franchise. Well, but the other They're thing about uh, that I remember about Spring Hill Jack was uh, some witnesses said that he had horns, and some witnesses mm-hmm. even described him having bat-like wings. Appendages, yeah. yeah. See, I've wondered if either that is embellishment or maybe people's memories being, you know, it was like a demon in the newspapers. Oh, well, he must have wings. But I did hear that he had some sort of apparatus or his jacket would kind of like think of like Batman with his cape and I wonder if part of that is when he right. jumps he can glide as opposed to plopping to the ground um, you know I mean I've heard everyone you know uh, you know the, the aspects of it being you know maybe his, he had deep penetrating eyes sometimes his, his eyes were burning like red embers you know you know how the ash can stuff went yes but you know but it, it was very very uh, very much in line with what was happening, you know, uh, with like Jack the Ripper and the Spring Hill Jack, uh, Spring Hill Jack stories in London, and then it kind of just went away. Hmm. It was, it was, you know, there was never anybody captured. There was, you know, because they they had you know wanted posters and all that same sort of stuff that you would have had in London, but he, he was just gone. All right, so we have to talk now about uh, the land between the lakes, which is. Um, Actually, I think it was a, a forested area that was sort of protected by uh, John F. Kennedy back in the early 1960s. And this is an area of land that kind of straddles Kentucky and Tennessee. And, of course, it comes with its very own monster, uh, the Dog Man. Right. Well, and, you know, the funny thing is they use the – they have the Cumberland, the Cumberland River, which runs right in front of the penitentiary. I worked in front of it for years. And uh, there was always legends and stories and whatnot. But that was one of the big ways that they brought electricity to Kentucky, by damming there, especially this part of Kentucky, by damming that and using hydroelectric. But yeah, yeah, the dogman thing, it, it, people have contributed things to the dogman ever since. I'm, have you heard, you've heard the story about the family that went camping. It's really tragic. A family went camping, I believe this was in the 70s, 70s or early 80s. And they were out camping, and there was uh, some. I guess some people heard just the most hellish screaming going on. And they come. Their camper was opened up just like a tuna can. I think was the description. It was shredded all to pieces. And first they thought, well, we, we don't have bears here. We don't have bears. We don't have big pumas or black panthers. Anything, you know? We have wildcats, you know, bobcats, um, coyotes, stuff like that. We don't have any really super powerful predators. And this thing was a monster. This was like grizzly strain. And as I understand, uh, the mother, the daughter was, you know, they, they were taken out and the father couldn't be found. And finally a park ranger, there was some like probably 50, 60 feet back into the woods and up a great big tree over a, um, an overhanging bow was this, gentleman's sleeping bag which there 
I wouldn't say he was in it. There was parts of him in it. Oh dear. Oh, it was it, it was instant. You know, fear just just visceral. Nobody was going to the parks. Nobody, and so, and I'm not saying well they had to play that down because of blah blah. I'm not saying that. I don't think they're that cold, but it was definitely you know they want to find out what this is, squash it, and let people come enjoy the park. You know, they had all these search teams. They had dogs. They had all kinds of people looking for tracks. Nothing. They they never recovered anything. But ever since that time, I mean, even before people reported seeing kind of large bipedal canine canine meets Bigfoot. Think of like a like a wolf bear. Right, right. Does that make a dire wolf? They called it. I said a a dire dire wolf. wolf, Yeah, with the most terrifying characteristics of each. And um, I'm actually, I actually have a friend um, who I, I'm, I will put you in touch with off air who probably tell you a lot more in detail because I got some of my information from him. But, um, but yeah, and then people have continued to, to hear things and see things. You know, of course, the classic wood knocks and things like that. Uh, right, right. You know, that kind of stuff. But again, you know, it's never been, it's never been found. It's never been answered what happened. It's not, like I said, and that's where it, it is. So many, so many of these stories is like, yeah, I don't know either. And, uh, sort of so this land between the lakes, we're talking about Lake Barkley, which I believe is in Tennessee and then Kentucky Lake. Uh, have you been to the area? Yeah. I, uh, Richard, I I live 15 miles from this. I've grew up my whole life. Ah. I have rocks on my back porch, uh, that I found by the old furnaces, the old quarries. I've, uh, I've walked the nature trails at two in the morning there, you know, when I was just a young guy. Um, nothing ever happened to me. But it's a it's certain areas got very dark and kind of creepy feelings too, especially those deep woods. Sure. You know, you, you get reminded how much you aren't in control of anything when you go into the deep woods. And um so yeah, it's pretty spooky, you know. It's it's one of those things that um there's a lot of stuff that happens here, you know, um, that ties in with like the the Kelly Greenman UFO encounter and, you know, just a bunch of different stuff, different abductions and tons of stuff. Things that I never realized was going on that had happened in Kentucky until I started digging into it. Well, we can, uh, we can all look forward then to the, uh, the new YouTube series. It's called History from the Dark Side. And uh, again, that launches in October. Do you have an exact date? I'm wanting to do it probably the week before, like a week or two before Halloween. All right. That way it kind of culminates, culminates it right on October 31st. That's my plan. All right. And again, they'll just type in, uh, they'll go to YouTube and type in history from the dark side, right? Sure. They can do that or they can look up, you know, look up uh, House of Asher and then they can go there and there'll also be connections and links because it's all going to be on my Steve, uh, Steve Asher House of Asher page. Excellent. Steve, sounds like a winner. Looking forward to it. Thank you so much for this. Absolutely, anytime. Okay, before I dim the lights in my little studio beneath the stairs, I'll be back in one moment with a few words about an upcoming episode. People are starting to finally discover my strange planet shop and they are loving the gear. The Mayan calendar design seems to be very popular right now and it's beautiful if I do say so myself. 
Rick Forgas from Atomic Werewolf Studios in Phoenix has done an absolutely amazing job with all of the designs. The Nazca Lines design is also fantastic, but I think my favorite right now is the Time to Redefine Reality t-shirt. But there's so much more than tees. There's mugs and leggings and tote bags and sweatshirts and hoodies and new designs and products arriving every week. You've got to check it out. Just go to strangeplanet.ca and click on the Strange Planet Shop button at the bottom of the page. Strangeplanet.ca. It's a strange planet. Grab the gear. Take the journey. Coming up Wednesday on episode 286, The Strange Life and Times of John Keel the paranormal researcher who investigated the Mothman sightings. In the wee hours of the morning, he was sitting there by himself, chewing on a candy bar and listening to a Long John Nebel out of New York City, who was the original Art Bell of that time. And uh, all of a sudden, this disc-shaped looking object kind of flew by his car and started heading for a ravine. And he thought maybe he kind of detected like a humming sound or something, but it looked close. And he said he was used to nights going in with a flashlight and investigating some spooky, spooky places. But he said that this really unnerved him and he locked all the doors. Until then, I'm Richard Serrett. So long for now. A new Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett drops every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at ConspiracyUnlimitedPodcast.com. Your mind. That is all for now. Oh, and remember to share and give a five star review because we have huge egos and need love. We're like cats, we need. We need constant petting. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live.